Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Uh, hello, one and all. The Man Team. Welcome to Polycast episode 401. Today I am joined by Canis Albinus. What is supposed to be happening? I've forgotten. Mega Bears Fan? I don't really remember either. I don't know what I'm doing. And possibly a little bit later, Makalua. We'll uh, have to get our best female voice in for the moment otherwise. Which I don't think we have, so we'll just move on. I have a female voice I can do, but it doesn't sound like Mackie, so... Yeah. Okay, well, we'll begin with a little bit of news, which is that uh, according to uh, Polygon, the, uh, what is this place? The Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, which is, uh, which hosts the Video Game Hall of Fame, uh, has recently announced its, uh, what, 2022 class of inductees, which includes the Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, Miss Pac-Man, Dance Dance Revolution, and Sid Meier's Civilization. I believe they had considered Civilization for a previous uh, induction, but they passed on it for some reason. Yeah, 32 other titles got in there first. Uh, so I guess there it's like the NFL Hall of Fame, where you have a delay before you're allowed to be uh, even on the ballot for it? Question mark? Cause, I, uh, these, I don't know. Because... Even the newest of those games seems pretty old to me. I don't know because uh, Bejeweled is on there, is already in the in the list. And uh, what else have we got? Oh, that's old for sure. We've got um, World of Warcraft. Well, one thing to consider is that uh, I don't know how they did their earlier induction classes, but I know that um, as of like last year, uh, they were basically doing it by online polls. Uh, I think we had talked yeah, about this wow. previously on this show, and uh, that included um, a link to where you can recommend games uh, to them. And uh, at that time, I did, in fact, fill out that form uh, for several of my favorite games. Uh, one of them was uh, Sid Meier's Civilization. I also uh, nominated Shadow of the Colossus and Silent Hill 2. So I think Shadow, if those show Shadow up, of the you Colossus, like those games, you can thank me. <laughs> Shadow of the Colossus is at least noteworthy for its um uniqueness i don't know so much about silent hill 2 but i never played well, that it one. was considered widely the uh, gold standard of psychological horror and has basically influenced the plots of almost every horror game that has come out since and it was released back in 2001 trying to see if there's so, anything newer on a, here a little bit influential grand theft auto 3 is on here <laughs> the sims i guess street fighter 2 Tomb Raider, Final Fantasy VII, Mario Kart, Mortal Kombat. And hey, at least this list includes StarCraft, unlike the list of best strategy PC games that we talked about like one or two episodes ago. (laughs) Yeah. Although this one does sound like it's more of a popularity thing, which is not surprising if it's an online polling setup. 
the heck is centipede? But I mean, what else can you do? It's hard to make an objective evaluation for games. There are things you can, you dudes who identify that a game is bad, like, you know, if the controls are, you know, it's buggy and it doesn't function properly, but it's a lot harder to, to say, you know, good features that objectively make a game better than another game. I think it's just human nature that it's easier to talk about things we dislike than to identify things that we do like. Because usually the things that we do like, we like on a very subconscious level. So it's very hard to explain why we like it. Uh, also, Canis uh, Centipede was an old arcade game where like a long like trail of centipede things went across the screen and you had to shoot like each section of it and kill it before it got to the bottom of the screen. It was basically like Space Invaders, except all of these invaders would be like connected to each other in a chain. I actually played that one. It was relatively new and I was in probably still in diapers. So here's the question. So doing the Atari as a kid. Oh, wait, there it is. Space Invaders is on here, because that's one I would expect to be there. Interesting, it looks like Miss Pac-Man made it onto the list before Pac-Man? Nope, Miss oh, Pac-Man. Oh, no, Pac-Man is, Pac-Man's on there too, okay. Miss Pac-Man came in this year. So are these, uh, this list is not alphabetized, so am I then to assume that this is, like, in the order that they were inducted? It looks like it. Well, can't go wrong with Tetris being the first game, uh, the that inaugural class. Uh, that's, uh... Which is ironic... I, I which is ironic considering its source. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I personally would consider Tetris to be possibly the best video game ever made. Uh, but I wouldn't go that far, but certainly the most widespread slash popular slash whatever. The most accessible and the most understandable, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's just a real simple, real super addictive puzzle game. Like you you can't go wrong with that sort of concept. And Tetris just like absolutely nailed it. Hit it out of the park. Yeah. I wouldn't call it the best game because... It's completely mindless. So Yeah, unless you're just going by like raw sales figures or something. Well, if you go by raw sales figures, Tetris, Tetris wins on almost every level. Yeah, that also put Minecraft way up there. <laughs> Minecraft is on the list, but it's further down. Yeah. Sa- sandwiched between Colossal Cave Adventure and King's Quest. I wonder how many of these were in the inaugural class. I wonder if they started with like five, six, ten. I think it was eight. Okay, because I'm I'm seeing Pong listed at number six, and I'm like, I really hope Pong was in the inaugural class. So they're trying to be at least semi-chronological. So if it was eight, then it looks like the cutoff line for this list was at uh, The Legend of Zelda being in the second inaugural, or the second uh, induction class. Oh my goodness, I've got heartburn. Not Never usual. Pleasant. Not usual. Is the list me. that distasteful for you? My goodness. No, <laughs> it... I think I ate something bad for lunch. I don't know. I, I personally don't see anything on this list that I think does not deserve to be in there, either as a really good game or as some important historic artifact. You know, even Bejeweled, I think, has a place in this list. I don't know if it belongs above Civ, but... Well, I mean, it was kind of the game that kickstarted the entire mobile, uh, you know, genre platform of video games. So, like, in that sense pretty darned influential. Unfortunately, that genre has since devolved into complete and utter garbage. Uh, But back when Bejeweled came out, there was that sliver of hope that uh, mobile gaming might actually be uh, decent. Mobile gaming. I feel like there probably are some good games. I just don't have occasion to mess with it myself, really. But like, there's a sea of garbage, but there there are some things that float, too. Well, it is kind of like Steam in that respect. There's a lot of crap. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. If you just look at the Steam library, like if you just pick random games from a Steam library, like truly random, like you just like roll an RNG and have it pick anything in the library. 
uh, you're not that likely to get something good. It will probably be an <laughs> anime graphic novel. I was going to yeah. say an asset flip. Or that, yeah. that too, yeah. Oh, there's something in here that mentioned what some of these games were that we didn't recognize. Um, let me see if I can find it. Keep talking. Which, well, since I just got here, which ones did you not recognize? Uh, Colossal Cave Adventure. Yeah, I didn't recognize that. Yeah, oh, that one that's... does not ring a bell for me either. Okay, that's from the late 70s. It's a text adventure. It's like Zork before Zork existed. And it was on, oh. like, mainframes and things like that. And it was that and Space War, which was... Space War goes back to the 60s because they used to play it on those really big room-sized computers with a tiny, you know, little monochrome screen. Sort of like Sid Meier's <laughs> Star Trek. Sid Meier's Star Trek, what? It was one of the first games he made when he was... At university in the 70s and 60s. Well, shoot, where's that? I I want to play that. (laughs) I bet you anything it's a Space War clone. Because that's like, Space War is like 1961 or 1962. And it was, I forget what university it was at that they did that. It might have been MIT or something like that. Was that like a vector graphics, like shooter game? I Uh don't remember what it was exactly. I just know that he mentioned it as like one of the chapters in his memoir. No, I, mean, I, I still was... have to get and read that memoir. I, I still haven't gotten it. It is a pretty yeah. good read. But if Spacer you type was in... just about literally the first computer video game, not counting tic-tac, not counting computer versions of tic-tac-toe and chess and stuff like that. And Colossal Cave Adventure was... I don't know if there was something else before that, but it was pretty much was the first text-based adventure type thing. I mean, you guys would know Zork better, but yeah. What else was not recognizable? I think that was about it. Okay. Yeah, most of them I've at least heard of. A lot of them I've played in some capacity, although generally not too much. I mean, there's plenty of these games on here that I've never played, and some of which that I actually dislike, so... <laughs> hmm, also, King's Quest is in here, but not Ultima? What? Yeah. I mean, I mean, they're two different types of RPG. But <laughs> I was Ultima... going to say. <laughs> yeah, but Ultima is what inspired things like Final Fantasy, so... Hello? Yeah. Well, if you if you did miss it, Mackie, uh, since you uh, joined a little late, uh, there is a link in this Polygon article to nominate games for next year's class. Oh. So if you think Ultima should be on that list, uh, I'm go already... ahead and <laughs> go there right now. <laughs> I'm, I can't find it. I'm so mad at myself. All right. Time to start nominating random games from the Steam library. <laughs> OK, the Star Trek game. An ASCII game made while at General Instrument that never left the local local network. It was the second game. Okay, probably does not hold up well in the intervening, like, 30 or 40 years. I don't think it exists anywhere. Yeah, probably not. Unless uh, Sid has it on, like, an old, like, floppy disk somewhere. An old 8-inch floppy disk. Or maybe even a paper tape, if it was long enough ago. Uh, it was in 1979? It could be a paper tape! I mean, it could be a floppy disk, but it also be a paper tape at that point. I thought that, that they had magnetic tape by that point. They had that too, but it just depended on the system you were working with at the university. Because if it was a few years older, it might be the paper tape system, not the magnetic tape one. He wasn't at university anymore. He was at General oh. Instrument. And uh, apparently mm-hmm. he caused productivity to go down significantly for a while until they banned it. <laughs> oh, damn. Portal's not on this list. I'm going to have to nominate Portal. Well, the last time we talked about this museum and they didn't put Civ on the list, we kind of assumed and disgu- decided that this was a kind of a sham list anyway, because it's probably made by boomers. 
Well, if you're leaving anything up to the open internet voting, you're going to get uh, some weirdness in along with uh, a lot of predictable answers. Well, my understanding of how it works is there's a form to nominate games and there is probably a group of curators who go through all of the nominees that are submitted and they probably select from those. I doubt it's just a pure popularity contest with like votes of the public or whatever. Yeah, can't really have gaming McGame face. Yeah, and a lot of things that are in here are legitimately, this is like either the first of its genre or started something revolutionary. I mean, I don't remember what this list looked like last time, but this does have a lot of, I mean, I'm looking through this list and I'm like, yeah, actually, most of these things. I mean, Solitaire is kind of weird. I'll give you that. Yeah, especially as a computerized version of a card game that already exists. I mean, if we're going to put those in, then yeah, like chess and checkers computerized versions should be on here too. Yeah, poker. The Royal Game of Ur. Uh, honestly, looking at this list, I feel like the only game that even comes close to maybe not deserving being on this list is Tomb Raider, because I personally don't think Tomb Whoa. Raider was all that great or super influential. Uh, uh, but <laughs> that's just me. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty popular and uh, made a, a movie or so. And... Made a movie. You did not do this kind of 3D exploration before that. A lot of things like Uncharted and other and things that have come afterwards are influenced by that. It's its own little uh, 3D exploration. Or, I can't really call it archaeology, but you know, it's sort. It's got puzzles in it, mm-hmm. so it's like. I mean, there's a little overlap there with Zelda, but there's a lot of things different about it too. Like, or at least enough. Female protagonist. I didn't say for it one. doesn't deserve to no. be on the list. I just said it's the closest thing on this list to me personally thinking is a stretch. I think Animal Crossing is a stretch. I'll give you that. You act like Zelda hasn't been a protagonist, Canis. You're being silly. Not on any of the <laughs> games in this list. <laughs> are you telling me that the CDI games are not valid candidates for this <laughs> list? They're not on oh, this God. list. <laughs> We're I would also rather see. If you haven't seen them, I will say I'm not being serious, and then you should look them up because it's hilarious. <laughs> I, I personally would also see entries from or other franchises, other intellectual properties be represented before sequels start getting in. So in that sense, I'm kind of iffy on Ocarina of Time and Miss Pac-Man, considering that Pac-Man and uh, Legend of Zelda are already on the list. But again, that's like, you know, whatever. It, it is different gameplay, though. Then, like the original NES Zelda versus Ocarina of Time are different by enough. And there's enough new things in the gameplay that it made it. <clears throat> a lot of people have copied, a lot of games have copied the gameplay from Ocarina of Time. Since I, I would outright say it tests different skills uh, yeah. to a large degree. Because, I mean, you kind of needed a guide to know where to go in the second quest of the NES Zelda. It was kind of obnoxious in that way. But really, most of the challenge wasn't figuring out the puzzles. In it was more so dealing with the difficulty of the rooms. And the, like, I don't know. I I've played a lot of Zelda games. Uh, some of them completed, but most of them are not that difficult in the 3D era in terms of the combat. That's really not what they were going for with it. Anyway, this uh, article also does mention one of the uh, reasons that the museum curators cited for including uh, Civilization, which is that it is one of the rare games that highlights creation over destruction, which is something that is still not common in video games today and was even less common back in 1991. Don't be silly. Take all the cities.
In today's uh, forum talk, we have a thread by Steve G700, which I assume is a prototype GTA graphics card. He uh, asks a question because he's, uh, it seems like he's in the industrial era or maybe the modern era, and he just got a great scientist. And in the same turn, five other AIs got um, great scientists, and one of them got two great scientists. And he wants to know how this happens. And I believe the the conclusion is, or the conclusion or the explanation for this, is that the first great scientist of a new era is more expensive, like 30 points more expensive or something, or maybe 45. And um, all the other AIs, if they were above the regular cost, when you took the expensive one, then they could all pick one too. Interesting to see Turing and Schrodinger in 1600s law. And Nobel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in the earlier uh, versions of Civ, they didn't like arrogate uh, scientists at all, so you could get whatever at any time. So Archimedes has been born in 2015. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> well, I guess that was a quick topic. <laughs> well, the second post I was explaining that if they already had something like... Uh, something they got discounted somehow because it was like from a previous era bleh, era and then the ai already had 60 percent plus of the cost or something it would almost be like an instant buy and <clears throat> there's there's a whole formula down here a couple i think there's also the fact that um civs can pass on taking a particular great person and when they do that i don't think they're allowed to take a great person of that type until the great person that they passed on was taken so if you have one civ that has like a crap ton of uh, campuses and is generating lots of great scientist points and they pass on uh, a particular great scientist, they have to wait for one of the other civs to take that great scientist. And in the meantime, if they're generating double the great person points of all those other civs, they're going to save up enough to buy more than one when that, uh, when that scientist is finally taken by someone else. So that's probably why uh, one civilization in here has uh, two of them. They had probably passed on a previous one. Hard to say. All right, next topic. Uh, speaking of things being random, or random things, <laughs> uh, Syphonetics, uh Oh, how do you say your name? Now, Cow Coden. I'll go with what Kata said. <laughs> Uh, the topics are with Civ 6 over randomization. They're like, first, this isn't an advice for it. I don't want advice for how to play, but let's dig, let's dig, dig. So why does he get so angry every time he plays it? You guys, and, let's give him advice on how to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He thinks it's over randomized. It's not that he doesn't want the randomization. It's been something in Civ games because you want every game to be a little bit different. That's why it has so much replayability, but he thinks it's unbalanced. You know, sometimes you have barbarians, like an example he gives us, sometimes you have barbarians in every direction possible sending scouts to you and you can't do anything with your one warrior and a scout and you get dead. And other times it's, it puts it in the weirdest spawning locations, which, yeah, I, I've seen those. And sometimes you have, on maps, you'll have a huge mountain range that divides you in a way that it's next to impossible to go after the AI or anybody else. I mean, it's great for defending yourself, but... Yeah. Some of the issues that they this person brings up, uh, to me, I think are not necessarily issues of randomization, but are actually problems created by playing on the higher difficulty levels. Because if you're playing on Deity, one of the reasons that you might be surrounded by barbarians is that all of the other 
um, AI civilizations, like start the game with multiple settlers and multiple units. So they reveal a lot more of the fog of war around them, which restricts where new barbarian camps can spawn and makes it more likely that they spawn near you because you only have the one city and the one unit and uh, reveal very little of the fog of war in your area. So that that's, I don't know if that's really a random problem with randomness or if that's just one of the many frustrating issues with the, the way that the game front loads uh difficulty in the higher difficulty levels i forget is that really a thing in civ 6 where they have a fixed number of camps they're trying to place i don't know if they have a fixed number of camps Mm. but they still have to spawn in the fog of war which means that if all the other civs it's not necessarily that they have to be near you but that they're just more likely to be near you unless the game has some logic that says you know a certain number of camps can't spawn within a certain range of a specific player or of each other. But I definitely don't think that's the case because otherwise we wouldn't be seeing this problem at all. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I partially agree slash disagree with uh, this post and it's not easy to parse. Like I, I've long criticized that you could get scouted by barbarians before you could possibly construct a second unit yeah, unless, on turn four. Like, yeah. yeah. And let's have your city under fire from that and slowing down your early game through really no counterplay. There was no choice you could have made other than to guess the direction that scout might've come from that could have altered the outcome there. You, you just have to deal with being behind that game. And even then you, your only defense is your one starting warrior, which might not even be able to catch up and kill that scout before it yeah. finds you. So, and gets back to its uh, outpost because the scout has three movement and your warrior has two. Now you can probably survive, but that you know that just sucks. Like you just take a huge penalty for no reason. And the extremes of the spawn logic are pretty rough. They're pretty bad. Yeah, but that's that's been true in Civ at least in Civ Four, and I would argue since before that even. Uh, like you could get some extremely unfair outcomes in any of the games. I don't know that Civ Six is necessarily worse than its previous two predecessors in that regard. So like, what do you do with that? You can probably constrain the starting algorithm more uh, to guarantee that nobody gets hosed. But if you do that, then you're going to get a lot more uh, of the same types of positions in addition. So it's like, how far do you want to go with balance? Because you can also make it so that like the Civ uniques are less powerful relative to generic options, and therefore all the Civs are more balanced. You could do this with star positions. But then it's not as interesting or variable game to uh, so I think if you're like want to go with a competitive setting, you probably should constrain the starts or like you really have like kind of a fixed start position where you're guaranteed certain resources, etc. Uh, but for a normal gameplay, I'm not convinced that you want to constrain randomness too much in that way. But I do think that there's some balancing issues too. Like you know, the early Barb Scouts uh, were an example of that. Um, and that would be easily alleviated by just a simple rule change such that the barbarian outposts do not start the game with a scout and they have to spawn the scout the way that they spawn other units. That at least gives the yeah. players and civs like a buffer of 10 or 20 turns or something like mm-hmm. that before those scouts even show up, which is at least enough time to pop out a second warrior or a slinger or a scout or two of your own. Now, as for the DDAIs rushing you, that is a survivable encounter, although it is not pleasant. But you, you, you're kind of like going to use your city to sponge hits a little bit, but not too much because you'll get it conquered. And then you have um, your warrior or probably warriors, like you could probably get a second one out, uh, fortified on defensive terrain near the city. They not only prevent the city from getting surrounded or, or getting hit too much, uh, but they also 
are soaking in some damage themselves. And if you do that, it, you can survive deity rushes. I've done it a few times. Uh, it's a bit of a pain. You don't, you never want to see it. For the same reason you don't want a bunch of barbs in your throat like you know, a couple turns into the game. It's going to slow you down. <clears throat> he's also talking later on about how he said major over-randomization of the resources, the map. Like last game, he tried his capitals okay, but he couldn't find a good spot for the second city. And he's like, eh. It's like, well, that's, well, one, you could turn on abundant resources, which would help with you having more nice city spots. But that's also just part of the game. Not every city is the way is to play. <clears throat> yeah, sometimes like, I kind of wish that the game would let me like load the game and get and look at the map before I do things like choose difficulty level. <laughs> like, oh, you're this, also... is a, this is a crappy Tundra Star map. I kind of want to bump myself back down to king difficulty for this one. A lot of the time, if your start's bad and you think your neighbor's is good, well, take your neighbor's start uh, in the literal sense. Go go conquer them. Like Because it, in order to leverage the quality of the tiles is a different path than to go for military. And the AI is not a good fighter, so you can generally just conquer it. Again, it would be completely unfair in multiplayer, but we're not. the vast majority of some games are not competitive multiplayer, so you're going to be playing around RNG somewhat. Now that being said, like the the complete extreme outliers, I you know I feel for this poster because it is true. Like you know I have a, an old screenshot where my starting city, where I'm not Russia, like I have one resource and everything else is tundra in my starting, and there's not even that many forests, and you know that's significantly slower of an opening than otherwise. No matter what you do, it happens, and that's why there is a big button in the UI to regenerate the map. Yeah, but we don't play that way. Yeah, and he was also talking about his second city not having a good spot to put it. It's like, well, sometimes the map just rolls that way. It's just, it's not, I mean. Plus, you can usually get some value out of even, like, marginal locations. Something else that would help a little bit with, the you know, stuff like the ridiculous, you know, Tundra starts would be if the game map uh, were not on, like, a cylinder and... Uh, were maybe wider at the poles and a little narrower, or sorry, wider at the equator and a little narrower at the poles, so that like ice and tundra are not so dramatically overrepresented in the volume of the map. Yeah, or at least have the settings where you, where if you enter the settings, you could make the tundra belt pretty small. Although that, of course, uh, poses lots of additional, you know, design challenges of of how to, you know, make the wrapping and stuff work. Oh, you can literally just do what you're doing now, but have less Tundra. Like, and that should be something that could be handled via the pregame map generation settings. Hopefully someday we'll get a, a computers like powerful enough and, and design good enough that uh, the maps for civilization games can be mapped onto something resembling a ball. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, there you go. 3D Civ, you play in a first person perspective in a Civ game. You have to move around a little. <laughs> well there are strategy and tile placement games that do take place on uh on you know ball like uh yeah, maps, yeah you can do but, it. Uh, none of them that i've ever seen are like anywhere close to being on the scale or scope of civilization it's true and you might be right that might be scaled up just with brute force computing power eventually and despite the fact that this is not advice but people have actually given him good advice things like people was telling him it- like you can do yeah you have two things you can set this up to fit your personal needs if you want it to be a little bit nicer and a little more fair you can you can set it up like that you could step down a difficulty level do things like the abundant resources hell even turn off the barbs or if you want it to be unfair to you and kick your butt well keep what you're doing you know you can make it more custom to the you can sort of in a sense customize your difficulty level 
Yeah. And, and customize the randomness to some degree. I mean, there's always going to be a mix of the games, uh, like the game's randomness messing with you and one's own skill interacting with it. And it's difficult to, especially as the person in question, uh, separate out what what things causing problems are the player's choices versus the game. And there's usually a little of both. Uh, in most games, it's more the player than the game, but that's not always the case. And there are some outlier scenarios where it's almost completely the game. So just how it is. <laughs> Are we done with this? I think so. Well, then we will move on to another aspect of the game. Uh, this one started by Victoria. Do you want an AI that can make reasoned choices? And uh, this this third is interesting. I jumped into it uh, midway through. But uh, some, somewhat of a thing we should start with probably is defining our terms for what you mean by reasoned choices. Because it seems like some people are thinking like the AI will think like a human or react, uh, you know, make long-term plans like that. And I, I don't think we need general AI to make a challenging AI in the context of a Civ game. Or rather, I know we don't need general AI to make a challenging Civ AI. But then, yes, it won't think like a human. The real question is, how effectively do you want it to play then? So, first of all, do we want an AI that can make reasoned choices? Yes, but not in Civ. And uh, we want to make sure we have our ducks in a row before doing that, because it's dangerous as hell. Uh, but not really related to Civ. And if you want to make an effective AI in a Civ game, that's a lot easier than that. And I would like to see that. But I think I'm somewhat in the minority. And I know we've covered the topic uh, previously on this podcast as well, in terms of how well the AI should play in the context of the game roles. And I, I am much more of a hardliner in that if something the AI does to win is degenerate, that is an indictment of the game's design rather than the AI if the AI is a good player. But yeah, I would like to see a stronger AI that is then less reliant on bonuses and uh, the difficulty comes from the AI's decision-making and then maybe even heap the player with bonuses or just make the higher difficulties using more advanced machine learning agent or something, for example. But like that's you know, that's not cheap. I know it's not practical, but you know, if, if it's something that I want to see, then it, yes, of course. Yeah, and part of it is uh, we're bound by the hardware because there's a vast range of hardware that everybody's game is going to run on and so they have to curate something that is still going to be runnable on the minimum one and yet provide challenge to the people who have a maximum set of hardware but even then a properly rational thinking and i'm air quoting that massively ai is going to require a hell of a lot more computing powder uh, power than what we have on a desktop machine i don't think that's true Uh, if you involve machine learning which they've done in numerous games now you you need the extremely powerful computer to train the agent in the first place, but I don't think you need it to just play against that AI. If, well, especially if the um if the game gets those decisions off of the cloud. Well, I wouldn't put well, it. Well, that's in, an option too, but like, I, would, I think you could just have the tra- AI trained. I wouldn't use the cloud. What I would suggest would be you use some sort of a network to train the AI how to play the game, and then you just release that. AI code as the playing game, and then that's how it works. And you could do that every time you create a major change in the game. You just rerun the the learning code, and that might take a while. But yeah, yeah, the actual creation of it would not be trivial in terms of computing power. But I think running it once it exists is not that much of a barrier. Oh, yeah. and like we're seeing people do this in different games already. I mean, I mentioned the StarCraft example, but now there's Rocket League bots that are playing at grand champion level too. 
like you know very there's probably only you know sub one percent of people out there who can still beat that so i i do think it's within reach of current technology but that doesn't that isn't reasoning in the sense that it's being defined in the thread right it's basically a trained algorithm for decision making specific to that game that is so effective in the context of that game that it outperforms humans uh that's not the same thing as reasoning but it will beat humans who try to use reasoning to overcome it in nearly yeah. every case yeah it's it's not passing the turret turing test anytime soon no but like even something like civ it, it's complicated yes but if you're doing you know billions to trillions of training games or whatever however many like sooner or later there's a finite number of choices and a lot that can be trivially ruled out in, in terms of what you where you can move your units what things you can build every turn like it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't take long to identify things that are obviously bad choices. And once you have the choices constrained, there really aren't that many possible choices per turn. So I, I see no reason that an AI agent in this game couldn't do things that we have already seen in numerous other games, like you know, beat the very best Go player in the world, the very best chess player in the world, the very best StarCraft Two player in the world. So yeah, I, I think the AI certainly, if it were trained on Civ Six, could do the same thing. But do we really want that in the base game? Well, you could either adjust the bonuses or you can do what, um, you know, apparently it's possible to use earlier versions of agents that play at various levels of capability. And I think that would be the, the true ideal. You can make an AI, you can make different AIs for each difficulty that play at different levels of ability that are comparable to measured levels of the players. Uh, that's an even higher bar. Like we're this is if cost us no object or whatever. Like, I don't expect to see this games. I don't, but I wonder if it's, it's also possible possi- in principle. I wonder if it's also possible to like reweight the decisions that the computer makes so that it gives preferential treatment to less optimal decisions as a, a way of scaling difficulty levels in a video game. That is a terrible idea because the AI already makes terrible decisions. We don't need to give it the ability to do more. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, if, I if you had a like smart... look at machine learning code and identify something like that and tweak it so easily, I don't think so. I might be mistaken. The other difficulty with that, though, is that it would then require the developers themselves to be somewhat aware of decisions made at varying levels of gameplay. Well, and I, a lot of stuff does can't I... even handle high level gameplay. Well, what I'm imagining is more like a piece of code that basically says, like, if you have if you're looking at several decisions and they all have, you know, different outcomes, you know, different levels of outcomes, ignore the ones that result in the best outcomes and pick the one and depending on the difficulty level, either pick the ones that have mediocre outcomes or pick the ones that outright have bad outcomes for like the easiest difficulty settings like that doesn't seem like it would be something where they would have to be a whole lot of like individual scenario scripting for and could possibly be fairly dynamic oh yeah you're, you're probably right because now i'm thinking like chess engines they have their top move recommendations but they also have a list of alternative moves that are ordered based on the ai's evaluation of the strength yeah they're all weighted so you just tell the ai okay disregard the ones that are above a certain threshold or the top x you know outcomes and then pick one from the remaining list it's hilarious and then you could have a hypothetically you could have an ai that at the highest difficulty levels plays you know quote perfectly but then also scales down based on the difficulty level that's chosen without the developers having to have like actually go in and program any certain scenarios or, or explicitly program different behaviors. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that would be 
difficult but possible in principle would be my guess. But now we'd really want to hear from developers on it because I don't have the expertise to evaluate how challenging this would be. Because yeah, like I'm picturing scenarios where like you have only moves versus scenarios where like your top ten moves are all pretty good. And yeah. the you know I don't think it would be easy for to generalize. Like yeah. your third best move in some cases might be nearly as good as your first move, uh, your top move. Whereas in other cases, it might be like game losing if you're right. just like throwing units away in an early war, for example. Oh, like then the player is rushing you, that, so. and it's like, okay, you either suicide this unit or you you put it in the spot where you know you live. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a I'm not an AI programmer, so I have no idea how difficult that something well, like that. I'm just would thinking be. in game context, like you could not you could not pick like always do the top best or always disregard top three or always you know x anything like there, there's even from a game play perspective i just know that it would not work if you told the ai to always disregard the, the five best options to it uh you'd have to have that be dynamic somehow and i don't think that would be an easy problem to solve but maybe well, game, i don't want to say it's impossible but the, the uh, game yeah. could put weights on the decisions based on how good it thinks the outcome would be and then have cutoffs for what those weights would be. That's that's kind of how I'm thinking. But again, I'm not an AI programmer. I don't know how these things work. Uh, I could be completely off base. But even then, like there are situations in chess where it's like made in one or like minus three for black. Like either you can win the game outright or if you don't do this move, you, you are in a losing position. And I could envision some scenarios in Civ that are similar to that. Where if you cut off the top weighted stuff, it's suddenly into bad move territory already, and like it's a big ask to to get the nuance right for this in the in the game with as many decisions as Civ. I think that's significantly harder than making an AI that plays it well. And I think the devs have said before when they've done the AIs that play better than our current ones is that you get the player frustration because the AI is too good at it. Yeah, but that's where I disagree with the devs, because a lot of that comes down to the AI is playing the game as it's designed uh, more optimally. And the AI, the game itself, the design itself, independent of the AI, the mechanical incentives of the game do not align with the developer's design vision or how they expect people to play. Uh, And when you have that kind of incongruence, you're going to get unfun outcomes, period. And it's the same thing. Like You can have people who are playing optimally against each other. And that's also frustrating because the game wasn't really designed for that. I would also imagine that a lot of the, the people who would complain about that are probably also the types of players who are playing the game more in like a role play kind of sense than in a like pure strategy gaming kind of sense where they're not necessarily themselves attempting to play optimally. They're just kind of, you know, having fun role playing as Caesar or whatever and then the AIs are not role-playing their characters, and that might be where some of that frustration comes from. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're wondering, I'm role-playing, why are you not mad at me because I've conquered or conquered you or conquered your neighbors so much, you know, or something. Right, or the situation non-trivial, maybe even the dominant percentage of the player base. I mean, certainly, okay, almost nobody plays optimally, but a lot of people don't even try to improve in the context of, you know, making mechanically more sound decisions game to game. They really are just playing to role play, but then they get upset when they lose uh, against the AI. And like, to my mind, that is an incongruence at the player level. Like that person has incoherent preferences. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, that's a significant percentage of your paying customers. So I guess if you want the game to perform well in the mar- in the sales department, you're going to have to at least somewhat cater to what are functionally incoherent preferences. 
And I, man, I wouldn't want to be put in that place as a dev, but I, I get that looks like the reality of the situation to me. Yeah, if they came through before a Civ game and asked all the players what they want, there'd be this super, super, super long list, and you'd have feature creep out the wazoo. Because I, I, I think mutually exclusive things. There will be plenty of things on that list where if you implement one, you cannot do the other for somebody else. Yes. And I, I've seen that with a couple of games that were Kickstarter games that the things the players asked to have put in and they're like, like, oh, sure, we'll put that in. But it was way too much work for the small team they had. Yeah, especially know? when yeah. the benefits of the Kickstarter is if you pay a certain amount, oh, like we, yeah. we, we will put oh, what you worse. want in the oh, game. That. And then it just becomes like a, I, I mean, it's not pay to win, but I don't, I don't yeah. know exactly what you would call it. But yeah, the, the people who have more money to throw at your project are not necessarily the people who uh, understand what the product should be the best. Yes. Although if I'm a developer, I would still want that list. I would not, I would not make any commitments to picking anything on it, but like when you crowdsource ideas like that, you can get some great uh, suggestions or great ideas from lists like that. Yeah. Uh, And some of them will make sense in the context of the game. Otherwise, then the like, like there's no way one person can possibly think of every potential cool thing that would fit their game to the same degree that like millions of people could. Uh, right. and so it's, but you would still need the designer of the game to be a good designer of the game and mm. to make that evaluation. So like, I wouldn't want to make them beholden to those suggestions, but just having more ideas available to choose from and implement uh, would certainly be beneficial. Yeah. And for every person who can donate, you know, a thousand dollars to your Kickstarter and get the top level you know, tier reward. There's a hundred or more other players who might have really good ideas for how the game should work, but can't afford to contribute anything or you know minimal amounts. And it's you know, not one k. That's not a typical. Yeah, hopefully, they're not being completely ignored because they're not ponying up the dough. Is this a be careful what you wish for kind of thing? I think so. I mean, we'll see. It is already here that people are making AIs that players can't beat. So it's just going to be a matter of how that gets integrated into game design as time goes on. Okay, well, I guess we are ready to move on to the next topic then which is a Reddit thread uh, started by Gusty Scorf 7, or sorry, Gusty Scorf 7 days ago, uh, <laughs> asking, uh, what is a weird or extremely unlikely sieve that you unironically want in a sieve game? That is uh, yeah. Hey, he's got moogles there. I don't think that would be weird, but it seems <laughs> oh unlikely. I just noticed you listed either Texas or California. Dude, no, don't get them started. That's hilarious. <laughs> no, don't open that can of worms, please. Well, Texas is at least a historical country. Yeah. yeah for all of 10 years, but yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it could technically fit the mold. And that, yeah, that, that certainly, that that's exactly fits the, the third title, though. Like, that is a weird choice. It's <laughs> it extremely unlikely. Choice. And also, it would be hilarious. Also, so, yes. For you Texas nationalists out there, I do want to point out that the entire time Texas was independent, they were almost broke on the verge of bankruptcy <laughs> and continually and repeatedly attempting to join the United States. So, yeah. Well, I would say their geopolitical situation might have had uh, an influence on that. Plus, they just didn't have that many people. Yeah, that doesn't help. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I love Texas, but that part of your culture needs to be reminded of its roots. But yeah, I think that would be hilarious, uh, Siv. And there's no way a mainline Siv would add it. <laughs> now, no, the Manchurian conquest of China, or really any different uh, dynasty that was around for long periods of time in China, would be valid. Uh, similar to something like Mughals, it, it is something of a oversimplification to just lump all of this into this China across yeah, its see, entire yeah, which, history. Which China is it? Manchu China, Qing China, Mughal China? I mean, there's very many variations of China. Mughal China? Mughal China? <laughs> sure. one of yeah, them. why Somebody's not? been playing uh, too much of you for. <laughs> Somebody's watched too much of you for. I'm just thinking, <laughs> what else do we have in the types of Chinas? We have Wan China, um, Han China. There's yeah. so many of them over 5,000 years. There, we can't just always use freaking... Uh, Wu Zaitan or Wing Shi Huang or whatever his the pronunciation Apparently of that we can. is. But uh, yeah, I would prefer to see some variety. But we could also just legitimately include different options as a sieve with different eras focused on based on what was available in the country at the time. Yeah. And China isn't the only uh, country that that sort of thing applies to. I mean, there's also, you know, empires like Egypt, which, you know, ancient Egypt existed for thousands of years under multiple dynasties. They probably had a more consistent culture than Yeah, China. their culture didn't really change that much. Yeah, invaded and conquered, but they did worship different gods over that time. There was different architecture. So, you know, you could have a case for, you know, different dynasties of Egypt being different uh, civilizations as well, just like different dynasties of China. Yeah, like the Mughals being integrated into the general India is even more egregious because they were... They were foreign conquerors that got a huge percentage of India for, and held onto it for a long period of time with a completely different uh, religion, culture, etc. Didn't Siv Four have a Mughal leader for India? No. Siv Five had the Mughal that. Fort. Yeah, Siv Five had the Mughal Fort as part of the Indian civilization, which is weird. Which is yeah, it's one of those whole lot moments because and that's like that's like putting a Native American building in the U.S. Uniques or yes, something. It's, it's awkward. Go. Let's see. Civs, I would like to see in Civ. Um, obviously, Tibet and Cuba and Ukraine, but those should be added at the expense of <laughs> oh, Russia. Well, well. Like, we should remove Russia, honestly. Well, I don't think Russia would care about uh, Tibet, to be fair. <laughs> That's not a Russia sticking point. Not really, I guess. Maybe the Ainu? Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, we're, we're going for an extremely unlikely, so sure. I do like Paraguay, just because their history of that war that was absurd. Somebody Such an absurd war to even start. Somebody in here suggested uh, the, the pirate things. Excuse me. Pirate oh, republics. Yeah. That was the word. Libertalia. <laughs> yeah. We, sure. You're the whole thing is piracy. Why not? As far as I know, we have not proven that Libertalia actually existed. Um, but the one in the in the Caribbean certainly did. It would be, it would, it would, you know, at least as a scenario, that would be very interesting. I'm just thinking how cancerous they are in EU4, and it would be hilarious to have them and be similarly cancerous, cancerous in a Civ game. <laughs> I'd like to see Israel, but that's just because I'm Christian and I like Israel, but has a big importance to our culture. But the Pueblo would be nice, but I don't think we're going to get them. We should include the African country of Chad just for the meme. <laughs> that would be pretty hilarious, but who would you make it the leader? <laughs> All depends Chad, of course. How, yeah, how much of a meme do you want to make this? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to make this a meme? Yes. <laughs> as soon as the pic, 
as soon as the leader screen pops up, it looks very different to other leaders somehow. <laughs> Somebody suggested that Inuit for something else. Do we have a bonus for snow or tundra? You know, to have an, another sieve that would utilize the snow and ice tundra area more. Because we don't really have, except for Russia getting a little bit of a bonus, that's about it. Or Canada, Canada as well. Yeah. To be honest, there really should how much the map is tundra. There really should be civilizations that get bonuses to like parts of the world that other people don't want to live in, and they should be substantial enough that they can compete with the rest of the world. But well, and especially since, as I pointed out earlier, the game map is on a cylinder, which instead of you know a spheroid, which dramatically overrepresents how much ice and tundra is on the. I wonder if there's a way to fix that. Probably, but it would be very difficult. It would it would change the game. I yeah, think, I, I mean, think one the, way to do I think it. You, you can make a spherical map with um, hexes, but if you're looking at the map from above, you're going to see the curvature, and that would be very different in a Civ game. Yeah, and, the other way would be to, to have a map where there are just more tiles at the equator than there are at the poles, but then you would have to have some specific... Uh, logic for how the wrapping works, like what tiles wrap to other tiles, and that's something that might be very difficult to communicate to the player, and also probably to draw when the player is looking at the uh, uh, edges of the map. I could see you could do it like a chart, where you draw an arrow that's kind of arcing between the two, because I assume in the uh, polar part of the map you would have area where tiles would normally be, but because the thing is a sphere... There's just not anything there. Sort of like how the how that one map projection where they cut all the continents out and leave the rest white. And if you do it that way, you could, on the background uh, for, for the map, you could just draw arrows between the ones that connect. You'd have to be careful, though, because you could very easily get into a over-busy environment. But that's not the topic. We should talk about sieves. Um, does anybody else have any they'd like? I kind of want um, Malaysia. I'm just reading through some of these. Some of these are pretty far out there. I do but, think uh, I do think we should have um, something in. Well, I guess if you put something in Persia that's Islamic, that would be Timurids. Yeah, which becomes Mughals, so you just call them Mughals. Um, Pre-Islamic. Well, Indonesia? I would say those are pretty distinct from each other. Actually, like Mughals and Timurids are a little bit separated from each other, and quite separated in terms of territory and uh, legacy. I guess my e- my EU four is showing. I've yeah. long advocated for seeing more, you know, nomadic civilizations or pastoral civilizations that also have, you know, nomadic or pastoral gameplay styles associated with them. And one of my go to examples for that would be, you know, Great Plains Native Americans. There should definitely be more Native American civs in the game because maybe I'm biased because I live in America, but they have a really interesting culture. And it would be. Interesting, because if we had more nomadic civs, then you could have a structure for those civs to actually stay nomadic. You know, if there was more than one civ that had it, it would justify, I guess, the development cost of trying to have a slightly different. Oh, you could have tons of them, too, if you wanted to go that route, because you also had native uh, cultures in South America, although not all those were nomadic. Uh, Pretty much any of the Mongol offshoots, and there were a ton uh, after the the Mongol Empire collapsed. Yeah, certainly the Huns. uh, They could be changed into that. I'm sure there were probably most of the some- Central Asian uh, nations were you know, in at different points in history. You had huge chunks of that land that were nomadic and quite threatening to their neighbors. Most of the time between like uh, 1000 or 100 AD to 
1500 AD, it was almost all nomadic land. Well, sort of. Already by the 1400s, a lot of those were... I, I don't think they were really any longer comparable in terms of their economy or setup. Yeah, they had to, mostly evolved into medieval states, but um, yeah. that's the very end of my my time list. Well, yeah, because the Mongols are yeah, they're 1200s in the first place. So. Ooh, ooh, Andalusia. Oh, yeah. Someone actually had that in here. Uh, somebody from Australia that isn't Australia. What? One of the aboriginal tribes, maybe. Oh. Yeah, I think that's what they're getting at and saying that. Somebody from Siberia, maybe? Just to cheese off Russia? <laughs> I've seen Texas a few more times. Yeah. <laughs> Perm, just to screw up Russia? I mean, I don't see any issue with adding Ireland. That's unironically fine. Ireland? Yeah. We already have it- Ireland, kind of. Well, that's something they were talking about in there is that the different Celtic civilizations have all been lumped into one mostly, or you've got the Gauls, but Ireland is different from Wales, which is different from Scotland. I mean, we have Scotland now, but we haven't had Wales and we haven't had Ireland. I mean, we had Boudicca as the Celts, but we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, yeah, that's not Ireland though. Derp. Yeah. She was in England, Steph. It's basically the same Oh, don't tell them that. Don't tell them that. I, I just love that that phrase when used in the context of two countries, because it, it is frequently an effective troll. Well, the <laughs> Russians thought they were the same and made a picture about it, but... I mean, yeah, probably from a Roman perspective, uh, chunks of England and Ireland were the same thing, so, I mean, yeah, depending. I don't think the Romans ever made it to Ireland. I'm sure they knew of it, though. They probably, probably knew of it. the people there about the same as the people they were conquering in England, as in they didn't give a crap because they weren't Roman. They knew it was over there, but it was going to be too much of a pain in the butt, and they'd heard tales from the, the well, they're not British, but the, who are there going, don't go over there, they're a pain to fight. And Rome's like, eh, this big island's enough. I believe they were called the Britons? B-R-T, or B-R-I-T-O-N? Rhodesia, Ghana. Oh yeah, and Rome was already having problems with the Scots, so. Yeah. It just wouldn't make sense to make that front even more of a hassle than it already was. And it's already difficult for a, a, a nation for, of that era to administrate something at that distance over water. Like, that's absurd. I want less European civs and more African civs. Yeah, we've had that t- as a topic before about the it's a bit, civ being a bit Eurocentric. Yeah, I mean, I think the main reason we don't see more African civs is it's just hard to design for them. We don't know as much. Yeah, whereas when you get into Southeast Asia and stuff, you have a lot of information about other civs that have uh, been there. It's like we, we don't see as many from South America or Central America as well, because a lot of that information got destroyed by the Europeans who colonized. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true for both Africa and South America and yeah. Central America. We still have a lot of information about a lot of places that seem like they should have been lost, but we have definitely lost more than we should have. Yeah. Well, in the case of like things like the Aztecs and the Maya and, you know, groups like that, like they have the benefit of having recorded a lot of things literally in stone, uh, whereas, yeah. you know, a lot of the cultures in Africa, maybe not so much. I'm or not like sure. Oral history or something like that. And the yeah, people I who think knew it most died. of Africa is mostly oral history. I don't think they had like written records the same way that we did in um, Europe, but. Yeah, so when, you know, the colonists come and they either destroy those cultures or, you know, assimilate them, those stories are just lost. Whereas, like I said, with the Aztecs and the Maya, like, at least we still have all the the architecture and all the, you know, writing on stone tablets and stuff like that, that as long as someone knows how to translate translate it, 
you know, we have a window back into those histories. Oh, we did figure like out how people mean sub-Saharan Africa, but they just generalize it to Africa as if like Egypt and pretty much everything in Northern Africa and Ethiopia, et cetera, just aren't part of the consideration when it comes to discussing uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Well, a, a big part of that is because a lot of those cultures, you know, people associate them more with Europe and the Middle East because they are more involved. Well, sure, but they are definitely unquestionably in Africa. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> well, it's like how even though America, the United States is in America and Canada is in America, they're usually considered European civs because... I think they're considered Western. Well, uh, yeah, but... And you could make the case... Well, not really, yeah, for the African nations. In the game code, they are considered European because that's what the tag calls them. Yeah, well, okay. it's what the basis of the civilization came from, is from a European. It's changed because of the different... Well, just because of the, the terrain... It sounds weird to say this, the culture changed because of the terrain, but really it is. Because the things you had to do to... to make life in Canada and the U.S. was a lot different from how you had to do stuff in Britain, and the culture shifted. seems kind of arbitrary, though, because, like, there are also nations or populations that originated in Africa that then moved into the Middle East or elsewhere. Uh, So, you know, in that sense, you could say that some of those are African nations, if we're going to go this route. Yeah. It's a complicated subject. Yeah. I mean, certainly, culturally, the uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is distinct from Northern Africa, and I would say both are distinct from, like, Eastern Africa. Well, it's sort of like how everything east of Germany has a much different culture now than everything west of Germany, just because of the situation that we had in the 20th century, so... And even before that, once you got past uh, Eastern Europe, I mean, there's necessarily just the terrain again over so many years is going to influence how people live. Yeah, even before World War II, a lot of Eastern European countries had more, you know, Asian and Middle Eastern influences, as well as the the huge influence of, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church, as opposed to, you know, the Catholic Church. Or the Protestant movements. Yeah. Uh, The Etruscans? That could be interesting, but they're basically just Rome. Like, they would be good for a scenario or a... Something like that, where you're playing as early Rome, and you're trying to survive against the Roman, the early Italian enemies. But as a full sieve, I don't know. Kind of on that topic, uh, maybe not, this doesn't really qualify as a full sieve, but maybe as an alternate leader, is I would like to see more representation in sieve of the Roman Republic. Because historically in sieve, you know, Rome and the Roman leaders have always been the imperial leaders, you know, Caesar and, and all all them i don't know how well documented the you know the republic period is and how easy it would be to find a leader from that that time period but i I think it would be nice to see that represented in the game as well we could easily find a a roman republic leader we have a lot of writings from the roman republic yeah i'm sure we do they're just not as popular and i don't know as much about it so cicero was from the roman republic oh okay well there you go i don't remember he may have been right after the empire was established but um, the time the Roman Empire had its civil war was about the pinnacle of Latin classical writing. And once you get past that, there's still a lot of Latin writing, but it starts to turn into more vernacular writing, except for the ecclesiastical Latin from the church. But for ancient Roman stuff, anything before 100 AD is 
pretty good at at the ancient Roman culture before it started getting influenced by Asian stuff. If we want to look at realistically new civs, what are the highest populated populations in the world? Most populous nations. Texas. No. Total no. population by country. So it's like have, the most populous state, maybe. But We have China, India, and then the U.S. And then uh, the next is Indonesia, which I did know, but now it makes sense why they're, they've been added to Civ. Yeah. Because they are a semi-developed country with 279 million people. Pakistan actually, is not... I actually thought Indonesia was more populous than the United States, so that actually surprised me. No. It's a miracle that they've held together as a country so well, considering the differences between their their islands and like they have a huge range of cultures, a lot of population and difficulty administrating across that, and they've they're still around. And they're fairly stable even. Yeah. As far as I know, they haven't had any real bad up re- upheavals for decades, maybe. Yeah, at minimum. The next on the list is Pakistan at 229 million, which is a lot more than I expected. The next is Nigeria, which I knew about because it's going to be more populous than the United States by 2050. And I think Nigeria shows up a lot on the, uh, you know, why no insert Civ here uh, Mm. threads in uh, on the 2K and Civnatics forums. Yeah, they're at a point where I'm not sure that they would count as unlikely or like a long shot to be included. Yeah. Because we've got Brazil under it that's more populous, and Russia, and Japan, and Ethiopia, and Egypt, and Vietnam. Well, also with Nigeria, they want to make, if they do put it in, they want to make sure they do it correctly and not, you know, piss off a bunch of people. Nigeria is kind of a weird place because it's almost equal between Muslims and Christians, and it's also very, um, it has a problem with corruption. So, and it also has a problem with a lot of population. Like, the city of Lagos is huge, and it is very poorly, um, it's right on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, and it's really low-lying, and it doesn't have good infrastructure, but it has, like, 10 million people. And that is a real big problem for them, and they don't know, they haven't been able to get anybody in who can really do anything about it yet. But they are a democracy, and they are... Arguably one of the better countries in in Africa to that will probably be very um, will probably grow quite a bit in the 21st century. They'll probably be on the top of the African pile, assuming their largest cities aren't underwater by then. Well, they've they've moved their capital inland in anticipation of that. Well, that's why I didn't say capital. I I said most populous cities. There is a I want to say there's a. set of statistics that I read a few years ago that said the largest cities in the world in 2100 will be Lagos, Nigeria, and Kinshasa, Congo. And they will both be in the neighborhood of 80 million people. For the whole country or in one city? In one city. That is a lot of people. Yeah. How in the bleep can you do that? Uh, that that's what they're worried about because they're not sure how they're going to do it. Well, one thing is that as... Hello? He cut off its sentence there. Think he might have gotten disconnected? Yeah, most likely. Well, I was going to say it would be like... He pulled out the uh, USB cord for my microphone. Whoops. Oh. Uh, 
Uh, what I was saying is, is as those, you know, countries industrialize further, you know, one of the trends with industrializing countries is birth rates tend to fall dramatically. So yeah, they, you know, maybe they, I don't did. Know if they factored that in. That's how, that's why it gets so big because right now in uh, these African countries, the health situation is such that people are still having 15 kids because so many of them die young. And once the country begins to industrialize, and um, kids stop dying really early, and people keep having a lot of kids for several uh, decades because they haven't realized that that many kids kind of causes a democrat democrat demographic problem. A lot of those people are going to move to the city because there's just no room on the farms, and uh, that's why the United States only grows. At, the United States and Europe and even China are growing so slowly is because we're mostly industrialized now and we've kind of realized we don't need 10 kids. We only need like two or three each. But if you go back... They actually put that in legislature, so... Yeah, but if you go back to like the 1900s, you still had people having five to six kids, 10 to 10 kids sometimes, because they hadn't realized that they weren't likely to lose as many of them in in, um, childhood. Like in the 1800s, you would lose probably if you were unlucky you could lose half your children to uh, pneumonia before they were five years old so yeah i've i've heard that in many parts of the world it is not uncommon to not even name a baby until like their first birthday because so many of them don't make it that long yeah i have heard that as well and it's really sad yeah anybody else have any ideas for things we could add to civ that are um unexpected Florida. Yeah, let's, let's not end the show on the topic of dying babies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Florida. That's the next save. Uh, let's go. The, the leader will be in America. We're we, we going full meme. The leader is, leader is Florida, man. The next this one on the funny. list that isn't already in the game is Mexico. Ooh. And then the next one is uh, Ethiopia. Is, uh, no, Philippines. And then um, Thailand. And then Tanzania, South Africa. Italy is in the game, technically. Well, I was going to say, somebody might argue that Mexico's technically in the game because we have the Aztecs, but that's totally separate from the European influence, you know, Mexico, because they had their own... uh, (laughs) Again, that's like putting in, like, the Chinook and saying that the U.S. is represented because the Chinook are in the game. Like, uh, okay, if you want to go that route, there are a lot of nations that have no business being in the game. No, 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 there's, there's... 1800s Mexico is a very interesting period in its history. And if you had somebody from that period representing uh, not modern per se, but closer to uh, current day Mexico, that would be interesting. I I would actually like to see that. We don't need France. We already have the Roman Empire. And and that's also one of the really neat things that uh, humankind does is that each of the civilizations is actually tied to a specific era. So not only do you get to represent more civilizations, but you also get to represent them in the period of history that is most relevant. You know, you don't have the United States, you know, founding Washington, D.C. in 4000 B.C. in humankind. <laughs> that comes with its own problems, though. It, yeah, it, it does. Uh, it, it can d- definitely be jarring to be playing as, you know, Rome and then suddenly be, you know, like China or something or the or go from being, you know, classical greece to being the aztecs yeah translation there's still a lot of civilizations that we haven't covered because people are uh, probably looking at the wrong era of said civilization thinking oh they're just this but no 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 go a little further go back go a little further forward 
go back a little bit and you might find an interesting area you could represent with the leader and have something different and new and civ. Yeah, more African civs, more Native American civs. I think we can uh, call it there. Mm-hmm. All right. This has been Polycast 401. I am your host, Canis Albinus, and we did finally get a Mackie. Woo! The me and team. I'll show you over randomization. And Mega Bears fan. And I will leave by having the baby once again unplug the microphone. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, now he's just playing with the computer case. Ooh, shiny. Yeah, it has lights on it. So does mine, although they aren't really something you can play with. Well, it's a, there's like a door oh. on, the front of the, on the front of the computer case with lights on it. He is currently mesmerized by it. Uh, and there he goes, to the wires. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips, copyright Take Two Interactive. Copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net.